The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. All right, well, hey, about a year ago, a man named Aaron Wren wrote an article that was published in the magazine First Things, and the title of the article was The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. Um, I don't know much about Aaron Wren. I probably disagree with some things that he says. I don't know, right? Um, but in his article, he puts his thumb on something that I haven't really heard or seen anyone put their thumb on quite so cleanly before. He describes what he calls in his article, again, the three worlds of evangelicalism. And what he means by that is three historical stages of evangelicalism in our country, the United States. He calls them the positive world, the neutral world, and the negative world. Here's how he describes each in in the article, these eras, right? He he describes the positive world pre-1994, okay? Everything leading up to 1994 or so. He says, society at large retains a mostly positive view of Christianity. To be known as a good church-going man or woman remains part of being an upstanding citizen. Publicly, being a Christian is a status enhancer. And Christian moral norms are the basic moral norms of society, and violating them can bring negative consequences. The second stage, or era or world, as he describes, is what he calls the neutral world. And he pegs this sort of from 1994 to 2014 or so. He describes this as saying society takes a neutral stance towards Christianity. Christianity no longer has privileged status, but is not disfavored. Christianity, um, being publicly known as a, a Christian, has neither positive nor negative impact on your social status. Christianity is a valid option within a pluralistic public square. And the Christian norms retain some residual effect. And then lastly, the area that he would argue that we are increasingly in now is the negative world. Listen to how he describes the negative world. He says, society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. And so think academia, um, think politics or entertainment. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. Now, the the dates here really aren't that important, okay? Rand himself says he's not married to those specific years. The point is that a change has happened, and it's happening. Whether you agree with Rand's categorization or not, I think we'd all agree a change is happening. There's a, a growing hostility towards Christianity in, in our world today, a growing negative view. And the question that we should be asking, or maybe already inherently are, is what does that mean for the people of God? What does it mean for the church? There are people in the world who believe that the world would actually be a better place without Christians, without us, just to put it in personal terms. In fact, some would say that one of the biggest problems in the world is Christians, especially ones who hold to this this thing right here that hopefully you've got in your hands as the inerrant word of God. And, you know, what we ought to know, though, is that um, right here, right now, 2023 in the United States, isn't the first time that God's people have found themselves in such circumstances, all right? This morning, we're beginning a four-week series on the Old Testament book of Esther, And Esther tells us of a time in the history of God's people that was not completely unlike our own. 
In fact, it tells us of one of the most perilous times in the history of God's people. Listen to how the late Eugene Peterson frames up the, the book of Esther. He says, Esther presents the issue of the nature and function of God's people in stark and simple terms, survival versus annihilation. Is it possible for a community of faith to exist at all in an alternately indifferent and hostile world? Can a community of faith prevail on the simple grounds of being God's people without demonstrating usefulness to the society in general and without access to power in that society? Well, spoiler alert, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, a community of faith can prevail and most certainly will prevail no matter the circumstances of the world. In fact, Esther in some way celebrates the eternal miracle of the survival of God's people. Esther, you see, is a, a living biblical example of Romans 8.28. That God works all things together for those who love him. He works all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's part of the reason why we're breaking from Romans right now and, and looking at Esther. We get a, a real live example of Romans 8.28 here. Esther is Romans 8.28 on display. Additionally, Esther has a lot to teach us about the covenant people of God who come into sharp focus when we return to Romans 9 next month. But Esther is, is also a, a bizarre book of the Bible. It's an odd book of the Bible. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. That's weird. No one ever prays in the book of Esther, even though there's a lot to pray for. <laughs> the Old Testament law is strangely absent. A lot of the decisions and actions of the main characters is never compared or contrasted with what God requires in his law. There's no prophecy. There's no word from God. There's no foretelling of the Messiah in explicit ways. There's no temple. There's no worship. And yet, God is present in Esther. I love how Karen Jobes says this in her excellent commentary on Esther. She writes, The great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. <laughs> As we think about our own world, sometimes, doesn't it seem that God is conspicuously absent? I mean, we live in an exile of our own, in a world where God is literally, at least, not seen. And yet the great paradox for us is that God is always omnipotently present, ultimate in his power and his presence, always omnipotently at work for good for those who love him. Those called according to his purpose, for his people, see? Now we're going to preach pretty fast through the book of Esther. It's going to actually feel really fast compared to how we were doing Romans 8, you know, this past fall. Uh, but the reason for the speed is that there's really one central point in the story of Esther, and it has to do with the hidden providence of God. This morning, we're just going to cover the first two chapters of Esther, just, um, which is, is really, the first two chapters is just a setup, really, for the main action that begins next week in chapter three. But for this morning, here's all I want to do. First, I want to give some context. All right, let's make sure that we know where we're at in the, the history of God's people in the Bible, right? Um, second, we're just going to kind of walk through the text, looking at the story, making some observations about the 
the, the empire, all right? Um, and then lastly, we'll do a little application work relating this to our life, to our world, even our negative world. Right, first, some context. Where, where are we? When we open up to Esther, where are we in the storyline of, of, of Scripture, in the storyline of God's people? Well, if you don't have your Bible open already, get it open to, to Esther, the book of Esther. Um, if you're in the pew Bibles in front of you, you're going you're gonna to need a copy in front of you, so don't, you know, don't be relying on the slides this morning. You're not going to put two chapters worth of Scripture in the slides. So get a, a copy of God's Word in front of you. If, if you're using the pew Bible, um, it's page 410. If you're uh, looking for Esther in your Bible right now, and you're like, where is that sneaky little dog at? It is a sneaky little book of the Bible to find. And so what I always say is you, if you open your Bible by accident, you know, to like halfway point, you're going to hit the Psalms. If you just work left of the Psalms, you're going to hit Job, not Job, Job. And then right before Job is Esther. Page 410 in the Pew Bibles will be in Esther 1. Um, when you get to Esther 1, you'll find that it begins this way. It says, now in the days of Ahasuerus. That's our key to knowing where we're at in the history of God's people right there. The days of Ashuharis. Ashuharis was the king of Persia. We actually know quite a bit about him from the Greek historian Herodotus. But Ashuharis, also known as Xerxes, if you're in the NIV translation, that was his Greek name, he ruled from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. Okay, and so if you're reading through your Bible, just trying to get familiar with it, right, you begin in Genesis, and you read about Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob, right? Eventually you read about Joseph and how his wicked brother sold him into slavery into Egypt. And then after Joseph, you learn about Moses, right? And Moses delivers his people up out of Egypt, and, and at the end of Moses' life, we begin to read about the man named Joshua, right? And Joshua, what's he going to do? He's going to lead God's people into the promised land. And after Joshua comes that time of Judges, the book of Judges in your Bible, right? And, and eventually we get to the end of Judges and we get to First and Second Samuel. And what happens in First, and First Samuel is that God's people, they demand a king. And they get a king. God gives them a king. First king is King Saul. And then we have King David, who is a better king than Saul. David is described as a man after God's own heart. And then after Saul, his son Solomon takes over as king of Israel. That puts us at about the year 1000 B.C. Well, after Solomon, the people of God um, have this great division. There's a huge division amongst God's people after the time of Solomon, after the reign of Solomon. And they divide. In the year 931, there's this huge division that happens. And we end up with the kingdom of Israel up north and Judah to the south. Well, in the year 720, you can read about that, by the way, in 1 Kings 11. Um, you'll get there eventually in your Bible reading plan this year. In the year 722 B.C., uh, the Assyrians come and they conquer Israel. And then in 556 B.C., Judah falls to the Babylonians, the world superpower of the day. And when that happens, Jerusalem is sieged, the temple is destroyed, and God's people are hauled off into exile. Not too long after that, in 539, the Persians rise to power and conquer the Babylonians. Uh, Persian, Persia becomes the, the new superpower in the world and under Cyrus II. And Cyrus, we read of in the opening of the Old Testament book of Ezra, was stirred by God. And what he did when he was stirred by God is he actually sent out an emancipation decree allowing God's people to return to the promised land. It was the first wave of return that would go and begin to rebuild the temple. That's all told in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. And Esther picks up 
About 50 years after that emancipation decree and the first wave of exiles returning to Judah. And so historically then, we're we're between the initial return from exile, but prior to Ezra himself and Nehemiah himself going to Jerusalem and building the wall. And so we're in this time where some of God's people have returned from exile And they're rebuilding Jerusalem, restarting some of the temple practices through hardship and toil. They're there. They're doing the work of establishing God's people in God's land according to God's ways. Meanwhile, there's others like Esther, like Mordecai, and many, many others still living in exile for reasons that were not given. (laughs) They didn't return to the homeland when they were allowed to. And that's the context for the book of Esther. That's where the story, the real story, begins. It's therefore where the text begins. In the days of Ahasuerus. Now, follow along in your copy of the Scripture as we work through the story and just kind of draw out some observations here. And, and for, for some of this, I'm leaning on work by a theologian and author named Christopher Ash. Just a little bit of credit where credit is due. But Esther 1, verse 1 again, says it was the days of Ahasuerus... The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now the first thing that we see here is that we are in fact dealing with an empire. A vast empire. Ahasuerus was the most powerful man in the world at the time. The, uh, uh, anybody seen the 2010 Oscar winning film, the, the King's Speech? You guys remember that one? The, the king's speech opens, if you remember it, it, it opens with the, the screen. And on the screen it says, it's 1925, and King George V reigns over a quarter of the world's people. Do you remember that? I remember watching that movie, reading that line, and being like, dang, that's a big kingdom. That's a lot of people. Well, if Esther were a movie, it would begin with the words on the screen that read, it's 483 B.C., King Ahasuerus reigns over almost all the people of the known world. (laughs) This is an empire that we're dealing with here, and it was vast. And at the center of it all is the most powerful man on earth. He reigned from India to Ethiopia over almost all the known world, which tells us that this empire, this Persian empire, it was inescapable. Everywhere you went... Even if you were rich enough to to travel, right? You couldn't, there really wasn't anywhere that you could go to escape the empire. You were born, you were raised, you lived, and you died in the empire. There really wasn't an alternative. You had no choice. Even those who returned to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was still within the empire. It was inescapable. It was also, secondly, seemingly invincible. Verse 2, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Susa was one of the four capital cities spread throughout the Persian Empire. The citadel was like the government compound within the city of Susa. And it says the army of Persia and Media uh, uh, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now, as we read this, we're to think power. We're to think might. We're to think significance. Ahasuerus is flexing here. 
He's flexing. He's showing off all the riches of his royal glory and his splendor and his greatness for six months. (laughs) Here we have all the powerful leaders, all the powerful leaders of the world gathered under the most powerful man in the world in one of the most powerful cities of the world. The empire is seemingly invincible. It's also, thirdly, visibly impressive, is it not? For six months, the king shows off the riches of his royal glory with this great feast for all these powerful leaders. Verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And so after the six-month-long festival, there's a week-long feast for those who live in Susa and work in the citadel. All the civil servants, we might say. Those who probably were working hard for six months to make sure that the king's party for all these impressive leaders of the world went off without a hitch. Now they're let in on it too. And there's this massive display of opulence and glory and wealth and status and power. Verse 6. There were white cotton curtains of violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of puffery, I don't even know what that word means, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. That edict that there is no compulsion means there's no restriction. Drink as much as you want. Do whatever you want. Eat, drink, be merry, enjoy the wealth, the opulence, the visible impressiveness of the empire. Now pay attention to this because appearance and appearances is a recurring theme in these opening chapters. We'll see it come up again and again. But for now, just note and observe that the empire is visibly impressive. Nowhere in scripture is that much detail given to a place except for the the temple. It's visibly impressive. We might even say desirable. I mean, pretend you're not at church for a second, just for a second. Just pretend like you're not at church, and um, pretend you're not supposed to, you know, answer with a church answer, but don't you kind of want to be at this party? (laughs) Right? All-inclusive, all the drinks that you want, (laughs) royal wine, lavishly served, no restrictions, do whatever you want. There is something about our flesh that finds this aspect of the empire desirable. (laughs) You kind of want to see it. You kind of want to be there. And yet it would appear that only half of us actually would be invited to that party. (laughs) Because we read next in verse 9 that Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Nothing else is said of Vashti's party other than it was for the women which perhaps ought to be a clue that in the midst of this vast, inescapable, invincible, visibly impressive and desirable empire, it was also a bit of a dangerous place. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, 
When the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumen, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So you see what's going on here. He's drunk. All right? He sends for his wife, the queen, Queen Vashti, and he wants to show her off. He wants to parade his, his trophy wife. He wants to, to bring her from her party over to his party with his drunken friends to show her off for how lovely she was to look at. Appearances, see? And if we sort of read some of the, the rest of the, what's about to happen into this, what we see is that he is displaying his sex object. This is the objectification of women at its drunken height by the most powerful man in the world. Dangerous. Dangerous. That's what life is like in the empire. And yet we read next, what we read next helps us to see that this empire, which is inescapable, invincible, visibly impressive, desirable, and dangerous, is also a little bit of a veneer. Verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now, there is irony here. In fact, there is loads of irony in the book of Esther. Here we have the most powerful man in the world, he has control over everything. What he says goes in the world, and yet he can't control his own wife. He can't control her heart. He can't control her will. And it enrages him. I mean, think, think how humiliating for him, right? And so in verse 13, he asks his wise, his wise men, I'd probably put those guys in quotes because look what they're going to say, what are we going to do about this? Right? That's funny. I mean, there's just a lot of humor that's there, right? I'm going to go ask my drunken friends what we should do about this situation. And listen to what they, they, they start to worry that Vashti's refusal is going to spark like a feminist uprising and where all the women are going to start to look at their husbands this way. All the women might start to have contempt for their, their drunken husbands. Everyone's going to find out about this, they say. And so they decide, here's how we'll handle it. <laughs> we'll send out a royal order, verse 19. Letting everyone everywhere know that Vashti is no longer allowed in the king's presence. That'll show it. Which is just ironic, right? They didn't want anyone to know about this, so what do they do? They let everyone know about it. It's also ironic that Vashti is forbidden to do what she herself already refused to do. <laughs> hey, what you already refused to do? You're not, yeah, you can't do that. No thanks, didn't want to anyway. We don't know if Ahasuerus is still drunk, but he agrees to the wise men. He says, good plan. In verse 22, they send out letters to all the royal provinces, every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language. It's a multilingual empire, multi-ethnic empire. They send this out that every man may be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his own people. That last part got tagged in there somehow. Um, according to the language of his own people likely has to do with the, 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 the household speaking the, the husband's native language, right? As a sign of his leadership, perhaps. 
And so we're just setting the table here today with chapters 1 and 2, just describing life in the empire in some ways. And as we reach the end of chapter 1, we have, we have observed right, that the empire is vast, it is inescapable, it's seemingly invincible, it's visibly impressive, desirable, dangerous, and yet a little bit of a veneer. And this is where the people of God live. There's nowhere else to go. Even returning to Jerusalem doesn't get you out of the empire. And as we turn now to chapter 2, we observe some things about the people of God living within this empire. First, they're susceptible to exploitation. Follow along in your copy, chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, Think for a little bit about what's going on here, all right? Um, the king appoints officers, men of authority, in every province, men of authority and power. And what they're to do is to gather all the beautiful, young virgins and bring them to Susa and place them under custody and give them what they need to enhance their appearance, and the one who pleases the king will soon discover what please the king really means. Let's just say it's more than a beauty pageant. That's the one who's going to be crowned queen. The church, this is essentially government-sanctioned sex trafficking to the benefit of the king, the benefit of the most powerful man in the world. And any woman who was beautiful and young and a virgin was, was susceptible to this exploitation. And of course, the book of Esther focuses on, on the women. But just, to, just to enhance the, the point here, the historian Herodotus recorded that as many as 500 boys were taken each year and castrated also for service as eunuchs in the Persian court. Esther is the only Jewish woman, we're told, that was caught up in this, but it seems reasonable to believe that she wasn't the only beautiful, young, virgin Israelite woman living in the empire. The people of God, see... We're susceptible to exploitation. We're reminded next that they were indeed living as exiles. In case we needed the reminder. Verse 5, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. This is the first mention of Mordecai. In the story of Esther, we're going to get more into him and the significance of his heritage in the coming weeks. But for now, we're explicitly reminded that this, this is a Jewish man living in exile. He doesn't, he doesn't belong here. He doesn't belong in the empire. This isn't his home. He's an outsider. His family was among those who were carried away by the Babylonians when Jerusalem was ransacked and the temple destroyed. 
And in contrast to the powerful, significant king, we're to see Mordecai as weak and insignificant and exile. As those living in exile, there seems to be also a struggle with identity, a tension of identity. Mordecai, verse 7, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman, we're told, had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so this is where we meet, for the first time, the woman that this book is named after. She's an orphaned Jewish girl. Mordecai's cousin, who's been taken to be raised by him as if she was his own daughter. And she has two names. Hadassah, her Hebrew name, and Esther, her Persian name. And the fact that she has two names should clue us in on the fact that this woman who, who is the center point of this story in some ways, that she spans two worlds, holds intention two worlds. The Jewish world in which she was raised and the empire in which she lives, including the Persian court into which she was taken. Interestingly, the author of the book of Esther never tips us off to which world she was more at home in. Or simply to understand that there's a tension of identity for the people of God in general, living in exile, and for Esther in particular, as the main character here. And because she's young, and beautiful, and a virgin, she's vulnerable. Vulnerable. When the edict goes out, she's taken, she's put in the custody of Haggai. Verse 9 says, she won his favor and is advanced to the best place of the harem. But then look at verse 10. It says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Presumably because it was dangerous to be found a Jew. Perhaps Mordecai knew of the anti-Semitism that was lurking close at hand, which we'll see manifest through Haman next week. Again, there's an uncomfortable air of vulnerability here. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her because he understood the vulnerability. He understood how vulnerable she was in that situation, and he cared about her. He treated her like his daughter. Verse 12, Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus... After being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Sheashagas, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. All right, here's where we learn this is, this is much more than a beauty pageant. In the evening, she goes in. In the morning, she comes out and she's returned. But notice, no longer to the harem of virgins. Under the custody of Haggai. Instead, she's returned to the harem of concubines. This is where the king's mistresses live. People who have been with the king in that way. 
There the women would live, these women would live in basically a pointless seclusion together for the rest of their lives, not to be returned to their homes, never to be married, but held on retainer in case the king fancied them for another night, which of course from time to time he would. They leave all that out in the VeggieTales version, by the way. That's not, that's not in there. Um, but listen, this was not a beauty pageant. This is a different kind of contest. This is a sex competition. That's what it is. Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the women advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. Interestingly, the word for love here is the same word that's used in 2 Samuel 13 to describe Amon's lust for Tamar. And so we might say that the king lusted after Esther more than all the women. And she won. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. It was also granted a remission of taxes in the provinces, and he gave gifts of royal generosity. Esther won. And now she's queen. And now instead of Vashti's feast, we have Esther's feast. And notice so far, we have no idea about the significance of Esther being queen, do we? We don't know how the story's going to play out. She didn't either. Nor did Mordecai. We have no idea of the importance of the role that she's going to play in preserving God's people. We don't know that she's going to be needed in that role. Neither does she. Which kind of casts some question marks over her character, her morals, her winning of that competition. And yet, God's at work. He knows it all. Now the scene is, is almost set here for, for the real action to begin in chapter 3, but there's one more thing we learn in chapter 2 about the people of God living in the empire, and that is this, that they were unlikely to have their righteousness rewarded. And in those days, verse 21, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Fan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And so Mordecai has done a very righteous thing here. All right, he snitches on the assassination plot. He tells Esther, who tells the king, notice giving credit to Mordecai, even yet for now, this righteous deed of his goes unrewarded. But it's written down. It's written down. And that's going to become significant when we reach chapter 6. But step back for a minute and, and look at all this, right? The, the empire they're living in, again, is inescapable, invincible, visibly impressive, desirable, dangerous. They had a bit of a veneer. And as the people of God living in this empire... They are susceptible to exploitation, living as exiles, struggling with the tension of identity, vulnerable, and unlikely to have their righteousness rewarded. 
Can you think of any parallels to our day? To our negative world, perhaps? To use Wren's category? Look, the people of God in Esther's day are are about to face the biggest threat that God's people have ever faced. The greatest hostility they've ever encountered. This is the empire that they're living in. And it's dangerous. And they're vulnerable exiles struggling with identity. And ours is a day where biblical Christians are coming under a growing hostility all around us. Again, according to Wren, we've never faced anything quite like this in the history of our country. And I'm not trying to sound alarmist. I'm just saying it's not going to get easier to be a Christian. It's not. This is the empire we're living in. And it's inescapable. Oh, sure, you can create a Christian bubble, but that bubble isn't really any more safe than post-exile Jerusalem under the rule of the Persian king. Your bubble still exists in the empire. Listen, this empire that we're all living in, isn't it also just a little bit visibly impressive? Hmm? Desirable? No? Will the accounts that you follow on Instagram betray you? Would your Netflix watch history tell a different story before you delete it? What about your browser history? Hmm? It's also dangerous, this empire that we live in. We're increasingly vulnerable. I don't know about you, most Christians I know struggle in some way or form with their identity in Christ. We're living exile, Peter calls us in the New Testament. Our biblical righteousness is not only unlikely to go rewarded, it is likely to get us canceled. What does that mean for the people of God? What does it mean for the church? Is it possible for a community of faith to exist at all in an alternately indifferent and hostile world? Can a community of faith prevail on the simple grounds of being God's people? Friends, the book of the Esther, the book of Esther is in the Bible to tell us yes. Yes. See, Esther is not in the Bible so that we'd have a good, strong role model for our daughters. She'd be a questionable role model, to say the least. Esther isn't in the Bible so that we'll seek to be more like Mordecai. (laughs) He didn't even want people to know that he was of God's people. He wouldn't even self-identify as a follower of Yahweh. No, Esther is in the Bible to remind us instead that we're like Esther and Mordecai already, living as exiles in the midst of the empire, and that we're to rejoice in the midst of the empire because God is at work. God is at work. See, the book of Esther wasn't recorded for the people of Esther's day. It was recorded for everyone who came after. It was recorded to tell and retell over and over of the hidden providence of God. To tell of the miracle of God preserving his people and fulfilling his promises. 
We'll see this more when we hit chapter 9, but the book of Esther was and is read every year at Purim on the Jewish calendar, still today. One author I read um, as I was preparing for this said that Jews in the Nazi concentration camps used to write down the book of Esther from memory and read it in secret on Purim. And this was a practice that drove the Nazis crazy and they forbade it because they understood its message. The message of God preserving his people no matter what. Working his plan no matter what. Working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And his purpose will not be thwarted. Not even by the most seemingly invincible empire on the earth. Thomas Merton, 20th century Catholic monk, once wrote, The last thing in the world that should concern a Christian or the church is survival in a temporal and worldly sense. To be concerned with this is an implicit denial of the victory of Christ and of the resurrection. (laughs) See, Purim, including the annual reading of the book of Esther, was an annual celebration acknowledging that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. Church, our victorious Resurrected Jesus, when he spoke his last words to his disciples, what did he say? He said, go into all the world. Go into all the empire. Get out there. And proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, Mark records. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew records Jesus saying. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations, of the empire, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, what? I am with you. Always. Till the end of the age. Then, ironically, Jesus left. (laughs) He ascended. And yet we're to understand That Jesus is omnipotently present even where he is most conspicuously absent. Like right here, right now. No matter how negative the world gets, our Jesus is victorious. Our Jesus reigns. The last thing in the world that should concern us is survival in a temporal and worldly sense. He's with us. He really is. He's working all things together for good for those who love him. He really is. And there really is no stopping the hidden providence of God. Let's pray. Father. Father, there are as many ways to apply this as there are people here this morning. (laughs) And so, Spirit of God, would you speak to each of us now? Would you help us to hear and, and believe that whatever is going on, Jesus is here. And he will be all the way to the end. 
whatever worries us in this world, whatever we see or hear on the news or around us in our neighborhoods and life that concerns us, makes us freak out a little bit, makes us want to retreat and hide, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. And so help us to hear him today say afresh to us, go. Go into all the world. A dangerous place to be sure. But go and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. No matter how invincible, how inescapable, visibly impressive the empire we live in seems, it is a veneer. Because all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to you, Jesus. And so guard us from exploitation. Help us to embrace living as exiles. Strengthen our identity as your people. Shore up our vulnerabilities and help us trust that one day our righteousness will be rewarded as those already counted righteous by the blood of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.